Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. We are making our way through the book of Isaiah. Glad you could join us. Today, we're going to get into a section that if you watched or listened to the, um, what did I call it? The What About Israel series? I think that's what I called it. We looked at this section in Romans 11 because Paul quotes this. So we started there in Romans 11 and came back to Isaiah 27 because Paul grabs that text and applies it to his point. Today we're going to get, we're going to go the other way. I want you to see what's being revealed here in Isaiah 27, and then I'll show you that uh, that my uh, my understanding is verified <laughs> or illuminated by the Apostle Paul in Romans 11. And I I said last uh, yesterday as as we ended. Uh, that you may not really understand the uh, word atonement. I think I think Peter quoted said uh, after uh, after I logged off, he said something like, "Oh goody." <laughs> um, yeah, we we tend to define these theological terms and import some meaning to them and then apply them everywhere, and uh, a lot of times it throws us off. We always have to let the context determine what we mean. So. I'll show you as we go what I'm talking about. So in Isaiah chapter 27, we have uh, we've seen we finished up yesterday with this statement in verse six. In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. So this is after that section where God describes. Uh, the, the dead coming to life. And he says, go lock yourselves, hide away in your room for a little while as my fury is poured out and wait until it passes over. We talked about kind of uh, what, that, what that might mean. And then this verse that someday Israel, Jacob rather, is going to be planted and blossom and sprout and bear fruit through the whole land. And then he made this statement, which is a little awkward in Hebrew and in Greek and in English. He says, let the, or like rather, like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? And those pronouns all kind of throw us off here. Him, them, them, his, they, But what he's saying here is God has struck all these other nations. We have seen that through the whole section here. God is going to uh, strike down Moab and he's going to strike down uh, the enemies of God's people. Remember the remnant idea is sort of implicit in this section that we've been looking at. So there are those who are faithful to the Lord. And then there are those outside of Judah, outside of Israel, outside of the Jews, who are enemies, and God's going to strike them down. But then we learn there are enemies of God within the Jewish nation, and God is going to strike them down. And that's been repeated since the opening chapter of Isaiah. That's been uh, predicted all the way along. So the question here is, 
Isaiah is asking, like he, God, struck all the others, is he going to strike his own people? Or like the slaughter of his slain, as God has slaughtered all of the enemies of the Jews, have they, have his own people been slain? Interesting contrast from the vision of Jacob being planted, growing, sprouting, filling the whole earth. That's, that's a wonderful vision, right? A glorious, hopeful vision. But then Isaiah asks this question. He sees something. It causes him to ask, is God going to slaughter his own people the way he slaughters the, the heathen? And the answer is yes. And again, that's not a new concept. That shouldn't take us by surprise. He has been warning them over and over again in Isaiah. And remember, we went all the way back to Deuteronomy at the beginning of uh, the, the Jewish kingdom. And God, through Moses, laid out exactly what was going to happen. And now we're getting more detail about that. Is he going to do this? Yes, he is. Verse 8. You contended with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. So this is now talking about God's people, Jerusalem, Judah. He's going to banish them. He's going to send them out. He's going to drive them away, shoo them away is one possible translation. And he's going to bring this, this gale, this fierce wind, as it says, to drive them out. Now, here's where we have to start looking at some definition of our terms. Here's how the NAS reads. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven, and this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. So the NAS is doing a little bit of interpretation for us rather than translation. You know what I mean by that? I, I say that quite a bit, but and every translator does this, right? My daughter is an ASL interpreter, American Sign Language. And her job is to help the deaf person and the hearing person communicate, right? So she is translating what, you know, say if she's, if, if the deaf person is uh, at a doctor's office, she's translating to the deaf person what the doctor is saying, and then uh, interpreting the, uh, the, the, the language from the deaf person to communicate to the, uh, the doctor kind of thing. Well, in that, she has to do some interpreting to translate effectively. You know what I mean? It's not simply a, let me merely repeat what is being said, but uh, at some level, she's got to decide how to express that to the other in a particular way. So every translation does that. If I were going to translate uh, Isaiah 27, 9 here from the Hebrew or from the Septuagint, from the Greek, I couldn't give you just a one-to-one word-for-word translation like the interlinear interlinears do, uh, those are virtually unreadable 
in English because languages don't work that way. You can't simply do a word for word and communicate anything. For instance, in Greek, word order is not the driving factor of meaning, whereas in English it is. And uh, I'm teaching Greek right now. We've got some first year students and they're having a hard time. Uh, a couple of them are of, uh, fig of, of learning how to translate because sometimes the, the subject and verb come at the very end of the sentence and they want to just start translating the words as they appear because that's what we do in English. So uh, there's always some interpretation that goes on in translation. But we want to be, we, we would hope that the, the biblical translators would be uh, as, um, as restrained as possible in their interpretation so that we're getting what the original texts say more so than we're getting the theological perspective of the translator. But again, that's impossible to do that completely objectively. So I, I, I don't want to too much fault on the translators. But all that to say, the NAS here is doing a little more trans or uh, interpreting than translating. Because they say here, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. This word forgiven is the word kafar, which is usually translated atone. Atonement and forgiveness are not the same thing. They do not mean the same thing. Sherry says, yes, I do watch Bill Mounts. Yeah, that's good. That's the curriculum we use as well. Uh, he's a good teacher. Uh, let, let that sink in for a minute. Atonement is not a synonym for forgiven. Now, in your minds, as Christians... It's easy to shift into thinking that atonement and forgiveness are the same thing because we talk about Jesus being the atonement for our sins or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And what is the result of his atoning work? We are forgiven. That's true. But that's not what the word means. Atonement is what allows for us to be forgiven, but they're not the same. So let me show you a couple examples of uh, how this Hebrew word is used, this, uh, this word kafar, to show kind of what Isaiah is getting at here, what he sees in 27, which will change your understanding. Because uh, again, if we look at this here, as it's written in English, uh, then it seems like there's going to be something that's going to bring forgiveness for Jacob's sin, right? That's how it reads in English, in the NAS here at least, that God's going to do something, some, something's going to happen, and Jacob's going to be forgiven. That's not what's happening. Very different from that. So uh, in Genesis 32, you may remember that uh, the actual Jacob, so in, in Isaiah, it's the Jews, that's who he's calling Jacob, right? The, the people. But in Genesis 32, it's the actual, the original Jacob, <laughs> the, the founder of Judaism, if you will, the, the man whose name was changed to, uh, to Israel. Uh, Jacob had a brother Esau. Remember that story? And from the very beginning, they were at odds, literally in the womb of their mother, <laughs> they were at odds. And then uh, Esau sells his birthright as the firstborn uh, to Jacob. And then Jacob deceives Esau 
and claims that birthright, receives the firstborn blessing from his father, Isaac. Well, after Isaac dies, Esau sets out to get retribution from Jacob, and Jacob flees. He runs uh, by himself, basically, uh, poor, away from Esau because Esau is trying to kill him. Well, over the years, Jacob is blessed by God. He prospers. He has wives and, and or wife and uh, wives, yes, because that's the whole Leah and Rachel story. And, you know, huge prosperity. So then he wants to head back to his homeland and see if he can uh, make it up to his brother Esau. Okay, so he's on his way back, and this is where he wrestles with the Lord and, and all that. Well, he's on his way back uh, to his homeland, and he sends a gift, a huge amount of goats and bulls and rams and camels, all kinds of uh, animals, which was their wealth back then, sends this to his brother Esau, and he's hoping that this would uh, make up to Esau and that Esau may not want to fight him anymore, right? So picking up, um, uh, we'll say in verse 18 of Genesis 32. So he's sending his servant with this great gift to Esau. He says, then you shall say, these belong to your servant, Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. So this is what Jacob is telling his servant to say to Esau. Uh, so these belong to, to your servant, Jacob. See what he's doing there? He's, he's, Jacob is saying, tell my brother Esau, your brother Jacob is now your servant. And he's giving you this present. And behold, he, Jacob, is also behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the droves shut off. Did I, uh, do I have you all or did I lose you now? Technology. Drives me crazy. Are you uh, are y'all with me? Can somebody give me a thumbs up if uh, if you are with me? All right, I'm gonna press on like I tend to do when this happens, and you can catch the video later. Um, but if anybody is back on, I'd appreciate it if you would let me know. All right, Kegu's got a thumbs up, so don't know what's happening. Sorry about that. Uh, Keith has lost you, but we're back on now. Okay, so I'm gonna carry on. So. Uh, verse 20 of Genesis 32, and you shall say, so Jacob is telling his, his servants, uh, you shall say, behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. This word appease is the same word kafar, which is translated in Isaiah 27 as forgive. This is much closer to the original. So you see what, what Jacob is saying here is, I have offended Esau. And now I'm bringing him a gift, hoping to appease him, to assuage his anger. Another word is expiate. Now, what has happened is, over the last couple of centuries, liberal theologians have pushed back against the idea that God needs to be appeased. They say, oh, that's, that's the Greek mythology. You know, those gods were angry and furious at men and, and people would offer their 
thousands and thousands of bulls and goats as sacrifices to appease these uh, angry, capricious gods, and and uh, they they offered them these sacrifices to try to settle them down so they wouldn't lash out in anger at them. Um, and so they say the God of the Bible is not like that. He's not a God whose anger needs to be appeased. Except he is. The Bible says this again and again and again. God's wrath abides on the wicked and his wrath must be assuaged. He must be appeased. Now, he's not capricious, so certainly he's not like the mythological gods of old. But he's like them, um, maybe I don't want to say that, but he, the Bible makes it very clear, his wrath, there must be death to satisfy God's wrath. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Right? So the NAS translates this very well here in Genesis 3. Take, the, take this present to my brother to appease him. Okay? So then uh, let's look at the uh, a passage we have already seen in uh, Isaiah uh, 22, in the Valley of Vision. Remember we talked about this? Where God is giving Isaiah this vision of his judgment on Judah. Uh, let me just read some of this. What is the matter with you now that you have gone all gone to the housetops, you who were full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city. Your slain were not slain with a sword, nor, nor did they die in the battle. All your rulers have fled together. All have been captured without the bow. All of you were found, were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me be, weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. So remember, we talked about this, that Isaiah seeing God's destroying the city and he he's he's weeping why for the lord god ha of hosts has a day of panic subjugation and confusion in the valley of vision god is going to bring panic and subjugation upon his people uh, he goes on talks more about this uh, he removed the defense of judah uh, remember and they depended on their weapons instead of on the lord they looked to their own um, self-sufficiency by tearing down houses and, and building up the wall with the, the materials from the houses and so on. It's in that context. Uh, it says the Lord, uh, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping and wailing instead. So they should have been walking around with their shaved heads and sackcloth in mourning, but instead they're celebrating, they're partying. And they say, let's eat, drink tomorrow, e eat and drink for tomorrow. We may die. That kind of thing. Verse 14, for the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me, surely this iniquity, and here again, the NAS interprets instead of translates, this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die. Now, the way that reads is, once they're dead, then God will forgive them. No. What the original says is, this iniquity shall be atoned for or it shall not be atoned for until you die. What it's saying is their atonement, 
is their death. Follow me? How are the Jews in this scene, in the Valley of Vision, how are their sins, how is their iniquity going to be atoned for? How will God be appeased? It's by their death. Uh, uh, Peter says, what about all the times where the atonement is, there's atonement without death? Uh, Give an example of, of kind of what you're talking about. The, the Jew, think about what happened over and over and over again in the sacrifices. Right? We, we talk about the Day of Atonement, uh, read Leviticus, all the atonement, and all, all of those occasions, it's the death of animals. Well, what's going on there? God is receiving the death of these animals in the place of the death of sinful Jews as the uh, the atonement as the um yeah sherry says the propitiation or and expiation god is appeased his wrath is appeased through the death of the animals in the place of the death of the sinful jews now the writer of hebrews tells us that would never actually satisfy god's wrath because animals are not equal to humans. This is why it is so important that Jesus came as a man. Because his death did appease God's wrath. So here's the thing. Here's the thing we have to get clear. Every sin of every sinner will be atoned for. Following me? Listen to me say that again. Every sin committed by every sinner will be atoned for. God will be appeased. His wrath against every sin and every sinner will be appeased. Either the sinner himself will suffer the wrath of God and being appeased. God will be appeased through his through the sinner's death. Or Jesus took the wrath upon him for our sins. God is just and the justifier. That's what Paul means in Romans 3. So God doesn't simply forgive sins. Forgiveness means to send it away, to just let it go. Like if, if you owe me a thousand dollars and I decide to forgive that debt, then I just say, you know what? Never mind. I'm going to clear the books. That's not what happens in the gospel. God does not simply say, you know what? Never mind. I'm just going to release every one of their debts that they owe me. No. The reason he can forgive you and send your debts away that you owe him is because your sins were transferred to the head of Jesus and God poured out his wrath that you deserve on Jesus. That's the heart of the gospel. And then because Jesus appeased the wrath of God by taking on his judgment, now God can forgive your debts. 
Same thing with pardon. We think of pardon as a as a president maybe taking convicted criminals and just saying, you know, I pardon you. You're released of of the punishment that you deserve. And the Bible does use that kind of language, but it's only telling part of the story. The reason God does that for us is because there has been justice meted out on Jesus. I hope you're getting that because that is so crucial to our understanding of the gospel. So same thing here in Isaiah 27. Through this, Jacob's iniquity will be atoned for. Through what? Well, he gives us one more phrase here. And this will be the full price of the and here again, the NAS translates it, pardoning of his sin. It's not, strictly speaking, what he says. What the Hebrew says and what the Septuagint says is when he takes away Jacob's sin, when he removes Jacob's sin. That sounds like forgiveness and pardoning. But what is this? Okay. Jacob's iniquity will be atoned for and his sins will be removed through this. Well, what's the this? When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones. When God destroys the temple and all of its ashram and incense altars will not stand, all the idolatry that takes place there, God's going to wipe it out. For the fortified city is isolated. The fortified city here is Jerusalem. A homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert. There the calf will graze and there it will lie down and feed on its branches. See, it's going to be a desolated city. God is going to atone for Jacob's sin and remove his sin by destroying the city. It's going to be so forsaken. It's going to be like a desert land. There would be calves roaming and, and grazing and lying down there and feeding on its branches. We've seen this, this same kind of language over and over again, right? It's going to be the overflowing with animals such that uh, the milk is going to spoil because there aren't going to be enough people to consume the milk. Again, he's been building this all the way through. When its limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women will come and make a fire with them, for they are not a people of discernment. Therefore, their maker will not have compassion on them, and their creator will not be gracious to them. Do you see that none of this, none of the context here is forgiveness? It's wrath, it's appeasement, it's justice. Paul quotes this in uh, Romans 11. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I did a whole series on this. You can go find it on YouTube. It's called, uh, What About Israel? But I just want to put this in context of how Roman, Romans talks about it. Paul is talking about God's hardening the Jews of Paul's day, so first century Jews. And he says this, I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery. Remember, a mystery is uh, what was hidden but now been revealed. He doesn't want the Christians, the Romans of his day, to be wise in their own estimation. And here's the mystery. Here's what's now being revealed. 
a partial hardening has happened to Israel. So in the first century, God hardened Israel until the fulfillment of the Gentiles has come in. And in that series I did on what about Israel, we cover what that means. And now he quotes from a couple of passages. And so in this way, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, quote, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. That's Isaiah 59. We will get there one of these days. And then this verse from Isaiah 27 that I just read to you, when I take away their sins, that is the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of this phrase right here uh, that is translated here. Unfortunately, it's translated the pardoning of his sin, um, but it's the removal of his sin or the taking of sin. And the Septuagint of this phrase, taking away his sin, or here it's pardoning of a sin. Paul quotes that verbatim here in Romans 11. So in that series, What About Israel? I walk you through uh, what I believe is the meaning of that text, that uh, God is about to destroy Jerusalem. This is just before 70 AD. And Paul is telling the Romans, this is coming. And that is when these prophecies of Isaiah 59 and Isaiah 27 will be fulfilled. So that's a lot. And, uh, and if you weren't with us in that series, that may raise more questions. Go watch the series. The point is, here in Isaiah 27, God is declaring that before, the, before Jacob grows and blossoms and covers the earth, he's first going to destroy the city. And the New Testament tells us that that happened in 586, but the big one, the final atonement, the final appeasement of God's wrath against the Jews for their breaking of the old covenant was the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's what I think is going on. All right, I see some comments here. Let me uh, run through these quickly and then, and then we will... Uh, We'll call it a day. So Peter comes back with uh, Moses asking for atonement at Sinai, Aaron making atonement for rebellion by covering the people with incense. I'll have to look at those. It, um, if you're talking about Sinai at the golden calf incident, um, I, I would push back a little bit on that. 3,000 Jews did die that day. And then God does say, okay, I will hold off on killing them. But on the day that I punish, I will punish. So I think in that instance, um, there was appeasement, but he delayed it. Uh, Lon says, Peter, uh, oh, so you're responding to Peter. Good, I'll let, uh, let you guys talk through that. Um, Peter says again, so reveal the nature of God that he is gracious and forgives sins is wrong. No, no. Uh, he also says in that same passage, I am compassionate, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, and I will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. That's exactly what he says. So they're both true. As he told Moses, uh, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will harden whom I harden. Uh, so some sinners receive the grace of God. We all deserve his wrath. 
Some sinners receive his grace. Some sinners receive his justice. Sherry says, when I read Leviticus, I always think every sin, every act of disobedience costs something. Yes, and there's a death for every, every sin. And that's why I say either Jesus died for your sin or you will. That's why we need to preach the gospel because everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus will suffer the price they deserve for their own sin. All right, folks, uh, I will not see you tomorrow. I'm going to celebrate my 30th wedding anniversary with my bride, and uh, we are not going to wake up early enough, hopefully, (laughs) Lord willing, uh, for me to broadcast. So uh, have a a great uh, tomorrow and weekend, and we will see you again, Lord willing, on Monday. Take care.